My name is Chris. Uh, I'm a pastor and elder here at Resonate. I'm glad you're with us uh, today. Uh, we got some mic issues to work through. It sounds like a little bit of feedback. Um, we are walking through a series where we are diving into, I think, some of most of y'all's biggest doubts, biggest disillusionments with the faith, biggest kind of questions or hang-ups around um, the Bible, what it means to follow Jesus, all those sort of things. It is very different series-wise than sometimes how we walk through Matthew or, or another book of the Bible. There's like a spiritual formation component to what we talk about uh, that is meant to be encouraging and building up. Uh, this series just feels different than that. Uh, in some ways, these sermons feel more almost like a lecture or a classroom. And, and um, at the end of the day, I think that's okay. I think that's part of um, faithful teaching and preaching uh, is, is equipping y'all as the saints for the work of ministry. And part of the work of ministry is wrestling with questions and wrestling with your neighbor's doubts, wrestling with your own doubts or disillusionment. And so uh, we will continue to do that today as we walk through these. So if you're hoping for more of that sort of like feed my soul kind of stuff, we will get back there. Um, that's just not the nature of the series. And I, and, and I think that's, I hope that's okay for you. Um, and the feedback I've gotten, I think, um, has been helpful uh, to get. And so I want to read a series of questions. We, we uh, do have a form on the website. Should you want to submit questions, ask questions, there's also a phone number. If you text it with your questions, we'll get those as well. Um, and so uh, if you have questions, if things pop up, feel free to ask them. I am sure today we'll unpack a whole bunch of them. But let me read a series of questions that we have received, just so you know the direction we're going. Uh, the first, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That's a great question. Uh, Genesis, is it literal, metaphorical, or both? Uh, the relationship of faith, religion, and science. Uh, the person says, most of my upbringing, I was taught to distrust science. Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Tower of Babel, are they non-literal literary devices? How could God just uh, always have existed without having a beginning? Uh, bang and the start of the universe and evolution and how that all aligns with the Bible? Um, or how do you reconcile genetic similarity to chimpanzees? Uh, and then lastly, this wonderful one suggested by the Stone Mountain Life Group, what are the ethics of the zombie apocalypse and how do we survive that? Um, so we get those questions too. I'm not answering that one. <laughs> the question at hand today is the question of uh, science and faith. And two things that um, historically, at least particularly here in America, have had some, some tensions around. Uh, and I want to give you a little bit of my testimony just because it does pertain to, uh, I think, this topic quite a bit. Uh, I was raised in a very math and science-based household. Uh, my whole family are all doctors in some ways. My dad is, both my sisters are, both their husbands are. Um, and uh, math and science was just our family's jam. And uh, we celebrated Christmas, but for the most part, our household was completely secular. And um, my mom's listening, sorry, but that was my experience. And so um, uh, going off to college, I was pretty professed atheist. Uh, and a lot of that was based upon sort of the math and science rationality of things. And during my uh, first year of college in, in St. Louis, um, there was someone who presented on um, faith and cosmology and physics and all those sort of things. Um, and I found that presentation best summed up by a scene from Young Sheldon, uh, if you guys uh, watch uh, the, the show. Um, and I don't endorse everything on the show. The show has its own goofiness. But uh, it's a spinoff of the Big Bang Theory of Sheldon, who is the main character of Big Bang Theory, who's a super genius. Uh, it's about his childhood um, and his mom, who's this uber-religious Texan Christian woman. Uh, and... 
Uh, the scene I'm talking about, she's got all these doubts about her faith. And um, young Sheldon, who's already super brilliant as a young child, is interacting with her. And here's the scene. Sheldon. Faith means believing in something you can't know for sure is real. And right now, I am struggling with that. So you don't believe in God anymore? That isn't something for you to worry about. I need to figure this out myself. Can I help? Maybe I could provide a fresh perspective. I don't think so, baby. Did you know that if gravity were slightly more powerful, the universe would collapse into a ball? I did not. Also, if gravity were slightly less powerful, the universe would fly apart and there'd be no stars or planets. Where are you going with this, Sheldon? It's just that gravity is precisely as strong as it needs to be. And if the ratio of the electromagnetic force to the strong force wasn't 1%, life wouldn't exist. What are the odds that would happen all by itself? Why are you trying to convince me to believe in God? You don't believe in God. I don't, but the precision of the universe at least makes it logical to conclude there's a creator. I, I didn't think it would happen again. Um, but so much of my testimony is kind of summed up in that scene of sort of coming to terms with <clears throat> the more we see, the more we observe, the more we understand that, um, that it is a more logical, I mean, even the argument there, more logical conclusion that there's something behind it all. Um, and so, and I'm not alone. Um, there's a long history of science and faith. Francis Bacon, who came up with the dang scientific method to begin with, was himself a very professed Christian. Johannes Kepler, whose laws of the planetary motion is a believer. Uh, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, and that's just the 17th century. 18th century, we get Leibniz and Lavoisier and Euler and John Dalton, and uh, you continue into the 19th century with Faraday and John Clark Maxwell, Louis Pasteur, Gregor Mandel, Mary Anning, uh, William Gibbs, uh, Carl Goss, and you continue into the 20th century with George Washington Carver, Arthur Compton, Ronald Fisher, Ryman, Lemaitre, uh, Towns, Walton, who's, gosh, Ernest Walton, he split the atom so that we can prove E equals MC squared, but he would say, yes, and that still points to the God of the universe. Uh, still going, George Ellis, I mean, people alive today, George Ellis, who's the former president of the International Society of General Relativity and Gravitation. He's no schlub. Uh, Rosalind Picard, who teaches at MIT, is the foremost scholar on AI. Uh, Francis Collins, who mapped the whole human genome. Like, all these people are faithful believers in the world of science. It does exist. A belief like in a creator that has endowed the intelligible universe with order is really what got the scientific revolution going in the first place. People saying, look, we can observe things because they happen. God created them a certain way, and there are certain laws that actually run this world that we can observe and look at and understand. Now, at some point, things seem to have gone wrong between the church and the practice of observing and just looking at the universe and coming to conclusions. Some of that has to do with the questions of how literal do we read the Bible. And here in North America, I would argue, particularly here in America, um, 
There was a particular strain of rationalism that kind of came in with the church, with the Enlightenment. And much of American Christianity kind of seized onto it and created this sort of phony war uh, between science and faith. You had things like the Scopes trial, which is a whole argument. Uh, at the time, there was, a, there was a whole cultural dynamic of sort of northern liberals and southern conservatives, like things have ever changed, um, in 1925. And um, somehow, um, the, the conversation of how do we talk about the theory of evolution became like the hinge argument. And all, both sides started doubling down on their perspective. Now hear me. I've got some disdain for the word evangelicalism. I don't like using it anymore because it's loaded and complicated and the last five, six years have led me not to use it as much. But in a very traditional sense, there's a definition of evangelicalism that is a global thing around high views of scripture, around wanting people to know the good news of Jesus, all this kind of stuff. And on a global scale, this whole conversation I'm preaching on today is like not a topic. If you, if you deal with Brit, Brit evangelicals, they're like, I don't understand why this is an argument. And not in a way that they're like, the Bible's just literal and we shut it down. It's in a way of going, all right, like, I, there's a literalism in the American world and this tension around science that we just don't understand. It is definitely an American phenomenon on some of these issues. But I also want to be very real, too. There are claims in Scripture that do fly in the face of scientific methods and processes. I am not going to try to defend miracles of Jesus and try to find some weird scientific method that can prove that Jesus simply used natural things and bombs or whatever to make it happen. We'll spend some time dealing with Genesis 1, but, but looking at those miracles. Now, I get the skepticism around some of it. I totally get it. I understand it. But at some point, if we are making the starting statement that there is a God who can create the Milky Way and put soil on a planet that we will probably never see in anybody's lifetime, then that God can also do miraculous things should he want to. And at that point, at some point, if that God comes to this earth and wants to do miraculous things like impregnate a virgin or heal a leper, he can do that. Now, that also feels like a very specific place in time where the scientific method of replicating those things is impossible for the, the supernatural work of God. That's why we call it supernatural, because it doesn't fit the natural models of things. And so um, I at least want to be real on some of that. But most of us, when we get hung up on science and faith, it is more about questions around Genesis 1, 2, 3 than it is about um, Jesus' miracles. Do I need to keep this out here just to make sure it doesn't lose signal? Now, we also have to be real that there's imperfections in science. Science, at the end of the day, has some fluidity to it. Every scientific finding is a hypothesis and needs verification and testing to reach conclusions, and those happen again and again. And then usually after a generation or two, some other scientist like Einstein comes along and goes, hey, we've been doing it all wrong the whole time. Right? That's, just, that's what happens in the scientific world. So we get pictures from the James Webb Telescope, and they're amazing. There's beautiful pictures of the universe, and they're, they're phenomenal. I love the, looking at all these pictures. But it's also led a bunch of cosmologists and astrophysicists to go, hey, we got to rethink the Big Bang Theory a little bit. Cool. That's what science does. And it drove everybody crazy during the, the pandemic because that's what science does. It goes, here's what we think. We're not totally sure. Let's make a decision. And then we have to pivot. And we got to turn. And that's okay. So testing and coming to different conclusions is part of. And part of science is observing data. 
There's data all around us. That's what physics, chemistry, biology, cosmology, astronomy, that's what it is. It's the collection of data and observing it and seeing where the patterns are and what is replicatable and how things act. It's, it's observing the laws of nature and, and, and speaking of those in a way that can explain them. Now, I think often the rub, too, comes sometimes in the interpretation of data. That, that the church and sort of scientists sometimes have some tension there. And as much as theologians like myself, should stay in our own lane. So I'm not about to get into all the astrophysics of how the universe was created. That's not my lane. That's not my area of study. It's not my expertise. I think at times, scientists go beyond their own lanes as well, too. Sometimes they observe how something acts and, and sort of the patterns, but sometimes lead, lead them to say statements around the why things happen. They observe fossil records, but they can't always conclude why or for what purpose things changed. Or at times, um, they, they start with a very naturalist presupposition, a very idea that this material world is the only thing we can possibly know. And they, they sit there and make statements or push God out of any part of the conversation. At some point, that's moving beyond the bounds of what science should do. It's moving into philosophy and theology, and it's uh, also not helpful. Now, I understand the counterargument from scientists. Um, that attributing things that we don't currently understand to God, um, some will say that's a way of suppressing further investigation, that there's so many things we know now that we didn't know back then, and back then we would have been like, well, that just the rain falling just must be God opening floods, so therefore we don't need to figure out anything more. I, I get some of those, but that's not what I'm saying. Like, I think theology plays a role in keeping science humble, but it should not keep science from continuing to ask questions and investigate. There's always more to be studied. There's always more to find out. Hey, we broke apart an atom and found some quarks. Okay, let's study those quarks. Maybe we'll break those apart and find something else subatomically. Cool. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's a good thing to do. But at the same time, scientists might finally reach a barrier where it's like, I don't know if we can look any deeper than this. And there might be things deeper than that, but I don't know if we can. And it should keep scientists sort of in that sense of also going, we are finite at the end of the day. And there's only so many things we can say or know or do or understand. That shouldn't stop us from investigating. But we also have to understand that there's limits to it all, too. So how do we think about science, then? What is our role in that? And there's been a long tradition amongst Christians of referring to God's uh, two books, that there's God's word, which we have in this literal book in his revelation, and there's the book of God's works, uh, which is really the creation of the world and things that we can observe in the world. And both texts reveal something. The church is stepping in and looking at those things and hearing it like, I know our church is filled with some scientific-y people. Uh, I'm, I'm just one of them. I, I was a science major. I finished college as a science major. I just went in a very different field. But I know people that do research. I mean, Abby up here in the front row does research scientifically. I know there's doctors. There's people that work at Emory. I know there's, there's all, we got it all. Now hear me. I think there's ways to, to view what you guys do, what you guys are accomplishing in a way that I think is centered on God. And then there's a way to view it poorly. Um, John Van Sloten, who's a pastor, speaks. He has a church that's just filled up with a lot of scientists. And he speaks of some of the conversations he has. I just want to give you some examples. For those of you who are in these fields, can hear these words. 
so here's one conversation. He says, as you spoke about how you discovered the mountains above the tree line store water like buckets and how that helps to mitigate the effects of faster snow melts due to climate change, it made me think about how gracious God was to make mountains that way, tempering the impacts of the climatological sins. Or the self-regulating neural stress management mechanism you wrote about in your paper reminds me of how God said, this far and no further to the raging torrent. Even as our brains have been built with a mechanism to turn down the noise and help us stress, God also protects us and doesn't let the waters overwhelm us. Or when you spoke about the deep joy you felt in being the first human being to ever see and begin to understand the nature of that protein, I had to wonder about the joy God must have felt when he came up with the idea of that protein in the first place. What do you think the healing power of that protein says about who God is? And these become paradigms and ways to go, okay, as you continue to deserve the world, as you continue to observe how God has designed those things, to go, man, how cool is it that God designed mountains that way? How cool is it that proteins work just a specific and certain way? How, How cool is it that this world is designed the way it is? It's as if to say that if all things are made through Jesus, he holds them together, they belong to him, and will one day be made new by him, then surely all things reveal something about who he is. And so the scientific world is like that. It is looking at it and going, man, that tells us something about God. So I want to take kind of the rest of the time. This is like four more sermons, but I want to look at Genesis 1. Because that is like the hot button, right? This is the the tension point for many of us. And um, knowing some of the things we know now about interpreting scripture and the context that it's supposed to be in, how revelation works, maybe how genre works, um, I want to take some of those tools that we've talked through for a few weeks and sort of work them out a little bit in Genesis 1. Now hear me. Our church actually has a position paper on Genesis 1 or creation. Um, and, And here's the wonderful thing. We can disagree. And if you disagree with anything I'm about to say, guess what? You are totally welcome in this church. That at some point, um, Jesus and what Jesus accomplished on the cross, there's some non-negotiables centered on the very work and character of Jesus. Absolutely. Everything else, we can go, I don't know. And I've got this theory, they've got that theory, and we're, we're working through it. Now, there's a couple boundaries to that, and I think there's a few theories that probably move outside the scope of what Scripture says, and we'll talk about those. But at some point, there's some variation. And hear me, I'm going I'm to lay it out there right now. I am not a young earth person. So if, if you're a, hey, the earth is 6,000 years old, and all the Genesis 1 things are 24-hour literal days, cool, you're totally welcome here. I'm, I just don't agree with you, and we're going to talk about why. But that's fine, and you're welcome here. And there's perfectly good arguments and great theologians who argue those points. Great. It's fine. But we're going to go a different route now. Um, and, and it gets into also just how we verify or how we read the Bible. Um, and let me be clear. Because science says something, that does not necessarily mean that science has to dictate what we think about the Bible. Uh, I want to be clear there, too. But science can come along and prompt us and go, okay, let's go back and read that again. Maybe we missed something. Or maybe we're making the text say something that the text is not actually trying to say. Maybe science and the text are saying two things in parallel. They're just not conflicting. They're just saying different things at different times, not conflicting things. 
And so that's what I hope to expose us to as we go. So take Adam um, being created from dust. I mean, we'll, we'll spend most of our time in Genesis 1, but take, take that. Genesis 2, Adam was, was formed from the dust. The difficulty, and this is the wonders of Hebrew, is that um, Hebrew has a very small collection of words versus like English where we have thousands upon thousands. So one word can and usually does mean four or five things at any given moment. So it makes translating Hebrew just a nightmare. And so um, you have Adam and, and how it's often rendered is formed from the dust of the ground. The difficulty is the Hebrew just says, Adam, the dust of the ground. There's no from, there's no, none of those words are in there. It just says, Adam, the dust of the ground. Now, as a translator, you've got to decide what to do with that. Do you go, Adam formed from the dust of the ground? Do you say, Adam, colon, the dust of the ground, or comma, or semicolon? You just have to make a decision. So does it mean that, that Adam was, um, God took some literal dust, God who doesn't have a body to begin with, but took some literal dirt and organic matter and somehow reworked the molecules into this biological human person? Think about all the words I just read into that that would not have been an Israelite's understanding of anything. Is that what the text is saying? Or is it Adam, dust of the ground, picking up of a phrase that exists throughout Psalms and others, that we are mortal beings, we are finite beings. Is that, is that what's being played? Maybe. Okay. Maybe Genesis 1 is doing different things than we expect us. Let's practice some of that. Genesis 1.1. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. It's always good to follow along. Genesis 1.1. If you can't find Genesis, it's the start of the book. opening line of the Bible. Now let's parse out a few of these words just to start. As I've noted before, Hebrew is complicated in its meanings. Sometimes, as with most translations, there's not always an equivalent. So, in the beginning. The word the does not exist in the Hebrew here. Uh, the definite article is just not there. It actually just says in beginning. In Rashid is the Hebrew word here. And so, um, you get this sort of statement around the start of things. And the difficulty is, do we mean a literal one-moment starting point? Do we mean something different than that? Because you deal with the word Rashid as the Bible goes, you get, um, let's take Jeremiah, you get this conversation around um, a king getting appointed to be king. Now, at some point, they start counting the king's years by the new year. So that's in the fall in Israel. So the, the first year of the king starts in, in the new year. That time that the king got appointed, so if they were appointed in May or something like that, and they don't start, they don't start counting the, di- the days or the years um, until the first year that the king becomes truly king. That period of time before then is called the Rashid of the king. And so you have a possible collection of time before the thing that actually becomes the thing we want to count and focus our attention on. Same thing happens in Job. Job's whole chaotic life before then is referred to his reshit, his beginning of life. And so you have a word that could possibly mean an expanse of time before we start focusing on the counting part of time. And so you have a word there that would lead you not necessarily to go, here's the, here's the starting dot, and then we're going to go linear from here. Not only that, but we get the heavens and the earth. Now, uh, most interpreters take this as a merism, which is just a grammatical phrase that we use. Uh, we use it in English all the time. If you search high and low for something, 
or if you look in every nook and cranny, or you're including everybody from young and old, what do we mean when we say those things? What does amerism then mean? Like everything, right? The sum total of the possibilities. That's what it means. So, one way to open now in this chapter. In some beginning spans of time, God created all the things. Cool. Now, if you keep going, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right. So, we already have a conundrum. Earth exists, right? And... Is, is that first first then a like header for the rest of the chapter? Going, hey, God created all things. Now we're going to talk about how he did that. Or is it, hey, in some expansive time, God created all the stuff. Now, let's pull our attention in a little bit. Is that what's happening? It could be. And hear me, there are theologians all over the map. So even if you've been told, hey, to take the Bible seriously and to only understand it is to only understand this very specific grouping of how to interpret it based upon 24-hour days and all this kind of stuff. It's just not true. Going back from the early church fathers, even Origen and others were like, hey, some of this language feels kind of figurative. Uh, Augustine took that position. Um, Even if you're like a staunch reform person, Henry Bavinck took the position that maybe this can be a little more loose than we think. Um, You have modern scholars like John Salehammer, um, who even folks like John Piper and others love, and and I would say John Piper takes the Bible pretty seriously. Um, John Walton out of Wheaton, um, who just, and the Bible Project really loves some of John Walton's positions on things. It's, It's fascinating, but there's a lot of ways to start reading this text to go, okay, there's some nuance of what is happening in this text. And what is God actually doing as he starts this work? Um, Because the earth, it starts saying the earth was without without form and void. Now, when I say earth, what immediately goes into your mind? Like, I think for most of us, like the planet. Like a shot from a satellite or the moon or whatever of the, the ball of the planet, right? If you're an Israelite, what are the chances that that's your picture? Right? It's not, it's not the way they would have viewed it. And not only that, but the word earth itself is translated way more commonly throughout the rest of the Old Testament as land, um, not earth itself. And so what do we do with that? If you're an ancient Israelite who is being likely when Genesis is being formed, which is in their journey to the promised land, guess what word they hear all the time is land. And guess what they think of when they think of that land? The desert, but yeah, where are they headed while they're wandering for 40 years? That God's like, here's where I'm taking you, here's where you're going. There's a promised land. I have a land that I've prepared for you. Now, when they start hearing about this land, and this is the, the route of a good number of scholars right now, is to go, perhaps what God is doing is preparing this, this place, this garden, this dwelling place, this land itself of where God's people are going to be. And he starts there. This but this land is formless, it's void. And, and it, it, it has uh, the deep, the home, which is this, always the deep in, in the Old Testament. It's like this understanding of like chaos and evil or disorder or, or things that are counter of what who God is. And so as we move forward, what is taking place? What is God doing from this point on? Now let's remember, you're an ancient Israelite. As, as we've kind of made a statement before a couple of weeks ago, this Bible's written for us, but it's not written to us. It's written to, at least in this section, ancient Israelites. Um, and so 
if their Genesis is being formed while they're on their journey, what is their context? They, they just left Egypt, who has their own understanding of how the world came to be, their own philosophies, their own theologies of how this earth came to be. They're, they've been probably interacting plenty with Mesopotamians who come through Egypt, who have their own stories of how the world came to be. It's, it's all these sort of things. And perhaps, perhaps, Genesis 1 is for them, as they're in this process of learning who this Yahweh is, a communication of what God is actually like. Unless the question that we tend to ask about the text. Here, here's a good example. I think John Walton speaks about this. Say you show up late for a play begin. And they're suddenly like, well, the play was written in 1934, and the, there was a prize-winning candidate who wrote the play. And you're like, I don't, I don't want to know about the script of the play. That's not what I'm asking. It's like, well, when... Um, when the theater was built and the stage was built, it was the 1950s, and it kind of came to me. It's like, I don't want to know about that. I says, well, then um, the set was constructed a few years ago for this thing. It's like, that's not my purpose. Well, the cast was chosen for this. It's like, no, tell me what happened after the curtain opened. It's like, oh, well, that's not really how the play began. The play began when the script was originally written and stuff like that. It's like, but that's the question that the person was asking. And we see that all those answers are not wrong answers to the question, but the, all those are aspects necessary for the play. But that doesn't mean that that's the question on the table that those coming in would be asking. And when we talk about like cosmic origins and sort of the scientific world, we're talking a lot about the stage and theater of things. But Israel doesn't seem to really care about that much. And even as you continue in their writings, that doesn't seem to be a primary focus. Do they know there is one? Sure. In some ways. But they want to know what happened when the curtain opened. They want to know what the story is actually about. And not everyone's going to answer that the same way, but we have a way that God has spoken to the Israelites. And it's a different question than 20th century, 21st century cosmologists are interested in asking. You know, perhaps Genesis 1 is more the story about God ordering the cosmos for the purpose of his dwelling with his people than it is about the actual materials of how God accomplished something. And so when they hear land, perhaps their focus is on this land that God is promising. And folks like John Salehammer and, um, or John Walton come along and say, look, this is a beautiful picture of what God is doing. And the rest of the Genesis narrative is not a reference to the creation of earth, but perhaps a preparation of this land for his people so that he can dwell with them. And this preparation of this area would become the promised land. It was a wilderness, and God brings order to it. And God commands, let there be light, and, and, and he accomplishes that. And, and I love even the language. So the Hebrew word for, like, make also means to fashion. And sometimes it's about God ordering the things more than it is about creating out of nothing. Now, hear me. Genesis 1.1, I think, gives us permission to go, yes, God created out of nothing. But from then on out, all the words for make can easily be God ordered the things. And the one time it really uses the word make is related to the lights, and how much do they think our lights, do you think they looked at the moon and like, wow, that's a giant rock floating around us? No. They looked at it and go, that's, somehow God lights up the night with that thing. That's what he does. It's a light. He turns it on somehow. And so God, God does those things and, and he brings these things into existence so that this, this first man and this first woman could thrive. Now, it, it becomes problematic of going, all right, why, why don't we interpret this as narrative history? Like when we get to Abraham, it's like, oh, we, we kind of go the route of narrative history. Do we do that with Genesis 1? And I want to walk you through a little bit of an exercise. Now, earth was created, and it was, it was what? Formless and what? Void, right? Formless and void. It's two words we were given in the description of this starting point. Now, 
Let's talk through uh, the first three days. What happens on day one? If you have your Bibles in front of you, you can feel free. What, what does God do on day one? Light, yeah, lightness and, light and darkness, right? Those two things come into be. All right, what happens on day two? Yeah, water and sky. So we get the waters on the ground, we get the sky and expanse up above. What happens on day three? Yeah, dry land starts appearing into the scenario. Oh, man. All right, so God took what was without form, no structure to it, chaos, and what did he do to it? He gave form to it, right? He separated things. He gave some structure. He gave some space to all the things. He brought out dry land. He separated sky and sea. He did all those things. Now, if that's bringing form, what should we expect to come next? God doing what? Filling the void, right? What do we get in day four? Right. So he takes the space that he's created, which, which is like the galaxies themselves, and what does he do? He puts... Sun, moon, stars, right? What does he do on day five? Yeah, fish and birds, right? So he's created a kingdom of the sky and a kingdom of land, and he gives birds to rule over the skies because humans don't rule the skies. He gives uh, fish to rule over the seas because we don't live in the seas, and he gives them their kingdoms and gives them species to rule those kingdoms. Now, on day six, what does he do? Yeah, he starts filling the dry land. Right? He gives animals, and in particular, he gives humanity itself to once again do what? To rule over those spaces. Just as much as the sun, moon, and stars rule the heavens, uh, we have dominion over this world. And you can even make the argument, in, based upon after Noah, that we rule over the plants and the animals rule over the land, and that twitches at some point. Anyways, so you have all this beautiful structure that starts happening and starts being drawn out of God taking that formless and void, bringing form and bringing structure to it or filling it. Not only that, but you start getting all of these patterns that exist that we don't match, we see in our English, but are so uh, entrenched in the Hebrew. We see patterns of three, seven, and ten all over chapter one. Uh, we get uh, three days of separation. Uh, we get three days of filling, three-part nature of Elohim. Uh, we get uh, three meshes of the word bara, uh, the sort of created action of work. Um, and so you have all of this. And with this pa- pattern of seven days, we see all sorts of multiples of seven. Um, so the second verse, uh, or the first verse itself has seven words. Second verse has 14 words to it. Uh, the word earth occurs 21 times in the poem. Uh, there are 35 words in the seventh verse of the poem. There's, uh, the word of God is mentioned 35 times in the poem. The phrase, it is so, appears seven times in the poem. And the phrase, and God saw, is seven times in the poem. Now, as I um, heard the teaching taught, the statement made, if I see patterns of three and patterns of seven, that would be logical also to look for ten. Um, and so we see those. So the word to make is ten times in the poem. The word according to its kind is ten times in the poem. Uh, the word God said occurs ten times in the poem. Three times a reference to people, seven times to creatures. The phrase let there be occurs ten times in the poem. Three times a reference to things in heaven, seven times a reference to things on earth. The poem, this chapter one is full of three, sevens, and tens. It's all over the place. And so at some point, we got to go, okay, this isn't exactly narrative history. There's something poetic. There's something structured. There's something different about how this is written. So let me connect some dots here. So to a people, Israelites, who are hardly asking scientific questions at all of a text, who are learning about their God for the first time, who this Yahweh is, they've heard story after story of disorder and chaos. 
whether it was Egyptian or whether Mesopotamian, here's how the universe came to be, that gods were fighting, and it just so happened that earth was created, and man was a byproduct. It's just chaotic. All their origin stories have this massive chaotic stories to them. And then we hear, we hear a God who speaks to them in the desert to go, okay, sure, there's chaos, there's deep. But what I do is I bring order out of that chaos. And, and not only that, but, but I create this place for you to dwell. And not only that, but as we look at the stories of the tabernacles, we look at the stories of the temple, almost all of um, the pieces of the garden have these beautiful connections to the tabernacle and to the temple, as if what God is creating in the garden through these seven days, which, guess what? It was seven commands that God gave for them to build a tabernacle, and it was seven days for Solomon to dedicate the temple. And so perhaps what God is doing is explaining to his people, I created this temple garden in space for you, for you to dwell in, just for my image bearers to be in, the place where I'm going to dwell with my people because that's what temples are. And God created that for his people. Now, here's where it stands immediately distinct. Once you build a temple in Egypt, what do you put in the center of the temple? Say you build a temple to Osiris, what should you expect to find inside that temple? A giant statue to Osiris, right? So God creates this temple land for his people. And what is he placed right in the middle? What was his image in the middle of the garden? Us. And so what gets communicated is a distinctly different, beautiful picture of what God is doing. And not only that, but he tells us to tend and keep the garden, which are two instructions that are given to the priests to tend and keep the temple. They're words that don't occur that much in, in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Adam and Eve are given these instructions that are priest-like to represent God to the humanity as image bearers and to go into all the world and to bring about the shalom of God, about all of God's um, potential like, world that he has created and to extend the shalom of the garden to the ends of the earth and to build, go from a garden to multiply and to build a city and have God's city through the end of the earth. That is the instructions of Genesis 1, which has nothing to do with science, right? It is all about the figurative language and God using the metaphor of a work week and rest, the same metaphor that they will live out in their patterns of life to go, here is how I'm going to want you to do it. So much different and so much more grandiose than sometimes we give credit for Genesis 1 about. Now, let me give you some quick hits on some of these questions. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Sure. I don't know. Right? Like at some point, that's a goofy question. No offense to I know who asked that. Uh, the relationship of faith and science and religion. Um, most of my upbringing was taught to distrust science. So, as, as I've hopefully pointed out, it is not science itself that's to be distrusted. But there are times when the interpretation of data flies in the face of what God, who God is or, this, or how Scripture speaks. But honestly, you should be skeptical of all things in some ways. I'm not saying be a skeptic. I'm not saying be super negative about all things. But you should be just as skeptical of what I say from this stage on Sunday as you do about what scientists say. I hope you're okay with that. Everything should be tested going, is this true? Right? And so I, as much as scientists can err interpretation and go weird ways, I can do the same thing standing up here any given Sunday. And I hope, I hope there's some ability to go, hey, I don't know if what Chris said was right. Like, let, let me go back here and figure that out. Great. If you do that, I've accomplished my job. If, if what I said makes you go, hey, let me open my Bible and see about that. Awesome. That's exactly what I want. I'm okay with that. And we could disagree and we could hash it out, have all sorts of amazing conversations. But, so yeah, should you be distrust signs? No. 
Should you distrust some scientists? Sure, that's fine. Um, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Tower of Babel, non-literary, literary devices. Okay. So Genesis 1 through 11 is unique. I'll tell you that, like full on. There's no other parts of the Bible that are written quite like it. Um, you can tell after Genesis 11, it hones in on Abraham. All the Israelite lineage kind of takes its own route. And so it is different. Now, here's my encouragement to you. Go back and read it again. Like at some point, we also have to have the checks of going, hey, maybe some of the words I'm putting in here, maybe some of my preconceived notions of how this text should work, that we're bringing modern questions to something that's not meant to answer those questions. Like, guess what? There's other flood stories in Mesopotamia. And they're different. Now, does that mean maybe some sort of flood happened? Sure. Does that mean it's localized? Maybe. That's another sermon for another day. But is it communicating something about the God of the universe that he purposely willed that humans, there would be a human family and lineage to survive and continue on when every other flood story is God's trying to wipe out humanity? Yeah. So let's go back and reread this text and have some fun with them. All right. The Adam and Eve exist before cavemen are after him. Ooh, this gets into a good one. So at some point, and the way I am currently leaning is that um, there's some, at some point there's sort of the hominids that do exist. This is, this is totally John Walton, John Salehammer. The hominids that exist in the universe of, or in the, the, the earth somehow. And then at some point when God decides to fashion the garden, this, this place for his chosen representatives to then flourish and live in shalom and kingdom and kingship from then on, he chooses from those hominids to individuals or maybe groups, I don't fall in that camp, to then be his representatives from that point on out. And so is that from Neanderthals? Is it from something else? Maybe. And so I don't have any qualms with that. I'm not trying to make the text say something that the text is not trying to say. What about dinosaurs? I think the same question as above. Genesis 1 through 1, verses chapter 1, 1 and 2 could possibly represent this long period of time. Sure, it's dinosaurs. Now, if you want to take a a young earth perspective on that and say, yeah, maybe there are dinosaurs, the flood wiped them out, it wasn't a comet, and our flood causes our carbon dating to be all skewed and stuff like that, that's fine. I'm going to disagree with you, but that's fine. You're, You're welcome here. It's not crazy. There's plenty of theologians that think that way. I just... Don't, don't agree. I don't think the text requires me to say that. All right, the Big Bang story of the universe, evolution, how do they align with the Bible, how do we reconcile uh, some of our genetic similarities. Um, as I mentioned, the Big Bang theory itself is already going through some issues right now, um, and I do think that God created ultimately the starting point ex nihilo, whether you want to call that the Big Bang or something else, that's fine. Now, God also sets the rules for the universe he creates. So the rules of astrophysics and the rules of cosmology are his rules to begin with. And that's awesome. I'm glad God designed how black holes and quirks and things are supposed to work. And so we'll keep figuring out. All right, is the universe made of squiggly lines? Is it made of dark matter? I don't know. That's what scientists are trying to figure out. Great. Now, the conversation of evolution, evolutionists, or evolutionism, that's a great question. If by evolution we are simply saying the ability to notice the way genetic mutations may play a role in species adaptation to circumstances, great. I have no problem with that. And I have no problem saying that. Like, I think it's observable. I think we've got some records of that. Now, God can form new life forms that way. And that's where I'd stand there. I'd be like, God, maybe use that as a way to form new life forms. He's the one who created DNA. Why would he not use that to begin with? Now, if by evolutionism 
You are implying that God is completely removed from the process altogether. Maybe he's like the watchmaker who set the watch in motion and disappeared. That, that I have a harder time with in Scripture. I think the constant picture we get in Scripture is God's involvement constantly in the things that he is doing. And so I, I would not fall in that category of evolutionism where, people, where God's just like removed from the whole process. But I think God uses the tools and methods that he hardwired into humanity and creation to, to bring about his goals. Cool? So at the end of the day, here's the deal. We should be amazed by the things we find in science. Amazed at a creator who created and fashioned the world just right, just like uh, young Sheldon speaks of. Created and entered into a relationship with men and women as image bearers, as, as Paul would say, the glory of God himself is in humanity. And God brought order and invited us into the work he was doing to bring shalom and peace and his kingship to the ends of the earth. And that's amazing. But we messed it up. <laughs> and we're still reaping, reaping the, 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 the effects of that. We caused chaos to come into God's ordered shalom world. But he's left us with wonders to see, to observe, to figure out and clues and hints of what he's like all over the place, in addition to his explicit instructions. And one day he came to earth in human form, Jesus himself, and he shows us the truest way to be human and points us into this beautiful restoration of where we are going with all things. He dies for our sins, he's resurrected, he ascends, and he invites us in to participate in that work by faith. That now God dwells again with his people, just like he dwelled in the garden, just like he instructed with the tabernacle and the temple. Now these become the new temples, and God dwells here on earth in heaven. As, as, as Trey kind of covered last week, heaven is back on earth through us, and we can continue to see God's powerful work in the universe around us and know him that much more. 